Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Mm -hmm. So you first. Me first. Well, um, so, okay, my inner nerd is going to come out just a little bit. Um, You know, during this season that we've been in, Uh, this whole COVID season, one of the things I've done just as a a new hobby is to um, study photography. And I've really enjoyed doing that. Watched a lot of YouTube tutorials. I've made a lot of new friends in terms of all these personalities I know uh, on YouTube who talk about lenses and cameras and Okay, All that good I stuff. For sure, they're not. You're not really making. No, no. I mean, just these new people that I'm aware of in the world that were have been in this space for a long time, and I'm just as my 14 year old would say, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the reason I started getting into photography is that you know, for the first few months of of quarantine, was using my iPhone for worship videos. And that just got old real fast. And so for my birthday, my wife bought me this great Canon camera. And um, I had no idea how to use it. So I had to learn. And lately, I have been um, studying um, astrophotography. And I am getting into that. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You've been studying what? Astrophotography. Stud- uh, uh, photographing the stars. Okay. Yes. And so um, I learned recently that in North Carolina, June to August, we pass through some kind of Milky Way band of stars and that you can, with a regular camera, um, take pictures of the Milky Way uh, during that time of the year. And so I've just been all caught up in that. And on top of that, the whole Mars landing. And um, I've just been reading, studying, caught up in that. But there's also for me, a a spiritual component to this, of of course, you know, God creator, and it's connecting to my own spiritual life. But I am um, just, I don't know, I'm just astonished by this whole area, this whole space, this whole um, hobby that's new to me. And it's given me something to do during this season in which I'm at home. Anyway, it may not be fascinating to anyone else, but I just find this whole area just completely fascinating. No, I, I mean, I love that because I do think that we are kind of inevitably so consumed with our lives because we perceive reality from the context of being an individual in the world. And so sort of things that are beyond our ability to immediately experience become really abstract to Mm -hmm, us. mm -hmm. And um, I think then, especially in hard seasons, it can be really difficult to discern the goodness 
of God and the wonder of God and really just like the power of God in a way that um, is is encouraging and not. And so, I mean, I remember my undergraduate degree, um, I studied music, but I also studied biology because my parents did not want me to graduate with a music degree. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> um, and I really picked it with very little, um, I mean, looking back, I would believe that it was a spirit led moment, but I, you know, I really picked it because I enjoyed English more, but I just, I wasn't doing very well as a musician. And so I just wanted a space to prove that I was smart. <laughs> so I picked science. Um, also my dad started out as a biology major and quit. And so I think it was also sort of a, like, I'll show you like I this kind of thing. Uh, but it wasn't for any love of the sciences at all. Hmm. Um, and then it, it was such a gift um, to me because right at the time that my um, faith was transitioning from, you know, I mean, I was growing. And so, so my child, I was outgrowing sort of my, some of my primary experiences of God or some of my childlike sort of places of trust. And so to be um, in this academic discipline that forced me to look deeply at just the um, beauty and intricacy of life. So like this microcosm where you can see just the beauty and grandeur of God was really um, so life-giving for me because a lot of ways that I had thought about God were being revealed to me as, as not true. And yet I was having this primary experience of mm -hmm. what life was all around me all the time that was invisible. And, and for me, it just was such a visceral um, testimony to the reality and goodness of God. And so I think the same thing, like, you know, you look like the sun comes up, the sun goes down, like whatever, what am I going to have for dinner? But when a, when a hobby or a new pursuit allows you to really see just the beauty and grandeur of, you know, the macrocosm, it just helps you realize, like, even though in my daily life, many things don't fit and don't make sense. And it's easy to despair. And, and I think we would be lying as pastors if we didn't admit that sometimes you despair and you need these ways of perceiving God beyond the confines of your own individual life. Cause when I was ordained, um, the, like I, I had invited, um, this pastor who was actually, we didn't go to church much when I was a kid, but for a while we went to Highland Presbyterian church in Louisville, Kentucky. And Jim Chatham was the pastor there and he was like seven feet tall. And then I went back and met him after college when I was going to go to seminary. And it was funny because he was like one of the only people that you perceived an adult one way when you're a child. And then you show up as an, as when you have grown up and they seem smaller to you. And so I went back to me and he did not seem smaller to me. He was just a very, <laughs> um, anyway, and an amazing author. And he wrote this book and I had asked him to come I mean, he wrote several books. I had asked him to come and do the charge at my installation, which or ordination, which was in Boston. And so he graciously declined, but he sent something from his book that my friend Yosef Surratt read. Um, and one of the things that he said that I will, I mean, I forget and I need, it's helpful to have this reminder. He said, you know, people don't need a pastor's help to find the goodness of God in moments of wonder. Like if you're standing on a mountaintop watching the sunrise, nobody needs a pastor to help them see God in that. And if you're holding a newborn baby 
at the moment of that baby's birth. You don't need God. Any, no one needs to help you see God in that moment. And, you know, when you get the test results that your cancer is just gone, you do not need help finding God in that. And he was saying, you know, the, but the call of a pastor is to help people find God in the moments where it's not, a, you know, it's not immediately apparent. And I think, you know, that discipline of study of the universe, I mean, straight from Romans, right? That, mm-hmm. uh, and I think for, for us to do that as pastors and to encourage people to say like, yes, look for God in your life. Absolutely do that. And also know that the wholeness of God is not to be found in the confines of your immediate experience. And that can be really, really helpful. Yeah, I think it's Psalm 19, almost said 91, but I think it's 19. It says something like, the heavens declare the glory of God, um, the skies his handiwork or something like that. And um, it, it really has been um, helpful to me in my own spiritual life uh, to have this new hobby um, when so much hard stuff is going on in the world and in my life and, and to realize that God is bigger, God is greater, um, that what I see every day on the news, what I experience um, in my community, the the pain that's um, mm-hmm. happening right now, that, um, that God is bigger. And for me, um, of course, scripture reading, prayer, all those classic spiritual disciplines are always helpful, but stargazing is helpful as well. Well, and I, I think, um, you know, to be able to hold that tension of do, is God in our lives and in the hard and in the suck? Yes. Mm -hmm. But, but not all of God is in that. So to be able to, you know, and I think that's, what's so interesting and what's so sad about this very arbitrary division that the culture war has inserted between God and the sciences. I mean, that's what we're both talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like stargazing or biology, you know, which is so sad because the the original scientists were were monks, were, um, you know, right. were people who were trying to um, learn about God by looking at God's creation, which is faithful. And, you know, as David Cook, said to me a long time ago, all truth is God's truth. And so whenever we look deeply at a thing, we'll see the thumbprint of God um, because that's what scripture tells us is that all reality comes from, from, from God. Yeah. I had to say, I, I felt compelled to say Sunday in the sermon um, Sunday, that was yesterday <laughs> mm-hmm. in the sermon that you don't have to choose between following um um, the teaching of Psalm 42 and listening to your doctor, your therapist. Uh, the psalmist is dealing with a, a depression. You know, why are you downcast? Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. That you should follow the teaching of Psalm 42 before you see your doctor, while you're seeing your doctor, yeah. and after you're seeing your doctor. That the two things, science and faith, they're not opposed, that they work together. Mm-hmm. And, well, and I mean, the psalm itself, like by saying, why are you downcast, O my soul? The psalmist is acknowledging my soul is downcast. Mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. is my reality right mm-hmm. now. Um, yeah, well, that's really, well, I'm so glad. What's, what's astonishing you? Well, no, I mean, can I just say like, oh. I'm glad to hear it because I think 
everything is so hard for everyone right now. And so I think when someone that you care about is, is sharing, letting you know that like, there's a place in my life where it's not hard yeah. and where I'm finding joy and strength, like that's just really, really like, that makes me really happy um, oh, well, thank just you. as your friend. And I'm glad that you're sharing that. And it's really, it's really good. It's really good. And to gaze at the stars is like an act of defiance and resistance, right? So it's a really, yes. it's a really spiritual gift. Um, my first moon photographs were terrible, <laughs> terrible, but I'm, I'm getting better at it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm finding and great joy in doing good it. At it. What's like the that? point, the point isn't to be good at it. The that's point right. is to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's really, really great. So what's um, astonishing you today? Well, honestly, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier this morning. I am astonished um, in like horrible and wonderful ways that our colleague, and I'm and I'm sure he was more your friend. He, I mean, I can't call him a friend, although I thought very, very highly of him. Um, Daryl Gaston died really unexpectedly this weekend and he was not, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. And I don't need to know the details of what happened. Um, but I, but I know it was unexpected. I, I'm like, I'm connected to him as most of us are to anyone these days through social media. And so like, um, you know, he was not ill and I don't, it doesn't sound like his, anybody had any idea. Um, so, I mean, A, just, I'm astonished. I'm astonished, I think like, and I don't ever want to get to a point that I'm just not astonished at the power of death just to remove someone utterly from, I mean, I just, it, it is, I mean, it's so, strange to marvel to be astonished at death given where we're all living in the world right now and given what we do I mean you know but when someone in the prime of their life is just gone that's that is incomprehensible to us and I think we are not people who should ever make make peace with death um so I'm astonished by that and I also you know, I, I'm, I'm just astonished at seeing, so he, he was such an incredibly bright light in this city. And I think, um, you know, there are most, I would say most pastors tend to be most well known within the context of their congregation and i and i'm sure that he was loved by his congregation but just watching the ripple of the news of his death spread out and just to see all the different circles of people who knew him because he was so invested in um loving his neighbor in concrete ways through activism and investing and he was somebody who and you know and i i definitely it, I believe that part of being faithful is calling out what is evil, right? So, so it's it is faithful to cry out against injustice, and and I'm sure that Daryl did that too, but I think he was so unique in that his his voice was most strong 
in crying out for what he was for and pointing out like, here's goodness and here's, here's what God is doing and here's what we can celebrate and here's what we can participate in. And, um, I really appreciate that about him because it's so much easier to be against something than to be for something. And I appreciate that everything in his life was so concrete. Um, like it, obviously he believed in the ideals of justice and neighbor love. And, um, but, but when you heard him talking, it was about like, this is what's happening at Camp North End. And here's a, you know, an initiative that I can get behind and here's somebody who's doing really good work. Let's support them. And, and he was very active on social media, which I'm grateful for. Um, he was definitely one of those people who I don't know that I can recall him ever saying anything negative about any person, but like his last two posts were um, just really beautifully sacred. I mean, they would have been anyway. And I remember noticing them at the time and just thinking like, that's nice, but not really, you know, but I mean, I think he posted something on Friday, just like marveling at, I mean, the language was like the dopeness of people's souls. Like, Hey, do you know, I mean, basically how fearfully and wonderfully you are made and like how, how, what an incredible gift you are to the world. And then, then the very last thing he posted on Saturday and he died Saturday night was talking about, you know, what does it mean to be a servant leader? And like, um, and I just thought like, what an amazing, just like, what an amazing legacy, what an amazing life that he was sort of unknowingly like writing his own obituary, like goodness, if, if I were to drop dead, it's very likely that the last thing anyone would hear me say publicly was something snarky about my children or pop culture. (laughs) Um, you know, I just, gosh, and I, I really appreciate, there is a lot that I fight with about our denomination. And I think that's part of loving your community is, Mm -hmm. is, um, like challenging it to, to be better Mm -hmm. and pointing out, you know, where, um, just the hypocrisy and things we need to strive for. But one thing I love about the PCUSA, and I I wish we leaned into it even more, is that, you know, Daryl was what's called in our tradition, a certified lay pastor, which means Mm -hmm. he was not someone who had had the opportunity to go to seminary or whatever. He didn't go to seminary. And I love that our tradition has a path whereby a person does not have to stop their life for three years and invest you know, tens of thousands of dollars and go to seminary and that we can recognize that people are called by God to pastoring by other pathways. And I just think like, man, he is such an incredible example of the way that our um, community is deeper and richer and truer and more faithful because it honored, uh, found a way to honor his gifting and his calling and to put him in leadership in a in a community. So like, yeah, I, I really, I mean, this is such a cliche to say, but I, I had been just paying more attention during the pandemic to everything that he was doing in his neighborhood and thinking like, I really need when we're done with this, like, I really need to sit down with him and just learn from him more. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sad that, you know, I've been in this presbytery with him for 16 years. So I can't say I didn't have the chance, like I did. Um, and so I regret that. And I'm just shocked and astonished that he's gone. And I also, you know, um, 
I think it's really important just to marvel at the beauty of his life. Cause to me that, I mean, and again, like I know him from a distance, but from a distance, like that is just somebody living out the gospel vision and way and walking it out. And uh, yeah, so that's what. Yes, you're right. Um, one of the hallmarks of his life was yeah. that he was very invested in and loved on his neighborhood, his community, and was known for lifting up what's good, um, along with um, resisting the negative, but um, known for saying, hey, this is, this is good. This is, um, this is where the spirit is moving. And um, I served with him on a committee uh, many years ago. Kind, um, kind man. I talked to someone this morning who um, let me know that he did have COVID, recovered, and that COVID may have um, been a part of 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 his his death. Um, in that uh, there was a maybe a pre-existing condition and um, some are speculating um, that, but yeah, very sad, very shocking. I remember seeing the email and uh, my first thought was, this is not an old person. Uh, and um, um, yeah, very sad at first. I, I was just numb. It's like, yeah, really? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, and it's, it's, it is hard. I mean, it is, impo- it's just really hard to comprehend. Yeah. Um, so, well, know. and um, I was telling my wife, I never get past the shock of someone's death. I can't count the number of funerals I've done. Yeah. Um, I worked as a hospital chaplain for a while and held people's hand as they took their last breath. And you never get over how sacred and um, jarring um, that is. Um, I I don't know if I've said it on this podcast, but I, I do remember saying recently that I remember when I was serving as a chaplain um, and one of the first patients I went to see was a woman who was dying and she looked like my mother and it just, it just really threw me. And so, yeah, um, when I first got the news about Daryl's death, I I was like, no, this this just can't be true because I I know his energy, um, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah, it does remind us of the remind us of you know how fragile life is. Well, and I hope that along with that, it would just remind us of. I mean, it shouldn't take someone's death to make us see mm. how what a gift their life is and what a gift it is to be in relationship with them, mm. and and so I. You know, because if 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 death is a thief and a liar, which we 
not only believe is true, but experience to be true. And I, and I always want to, I mean, we, we are a people of life and we, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that's so heartbreaking about this pandemic is how, you know, somehow there's just all this very callow talk about like, eh, people are going to die and it just is what it mm-hmm. is and that, you know, whatever. Um, and, and along with seeing just what a, what a loss each death is, it should open us up to what a gift, what an amazing, miraculous, precious gift it is to be in relationship with people who are here with us. And that was really, that's really hard. When I, when I was doing youth ministry, I had an activity I did all the time with youth about getting them to write their own obituaries. And I think like, it's just, again, I don't, I don't, I don't ever want to romanticize death. I don't ever, sorry. I don't know how to turn off my phone other than to physically turn it off. Oh gosh, stop. Okay. Sorry. We have a home phone because our kids don't have cell phones. So anyway, um, I, I think it is, it, I do not, I'm not a person like I respectfully, I not so respectfully, um, disagree with, uh, St. Francis that like, I, I'm, I'm not down with sister death. Like, I don't think that that was part mm-hmm. of the design of creation, but I do think that um, it does throw in stark relief, what a gift it is to be alive and, and what a gift it is to be able to be intentional about the kind of life that we want to cooperate with the Holy spirit to create in ourselves and um, be grateful for in other people. So I, anyway, yeah. so. and it makes the hope of the resurrection more than this theoretical, theological thing we talk about to bring comfort to grieving people. Like uh, someone, um, this was in 2019. I remember after one funeral, someone came up to me very sincerely and asked, um, what do people do who don't believe in the resurrection in times like this? It's like, I... I, I need this hope. I, mm-hmm. I'm grateful for this hope. It's this hope that lets me know, that lets me trust that beyond the last breath of this life, that there is uh, a, another life, a new life, an embodied life um, that is coming. Um, well, and-, and I think, I mean, to bring it full circle, like that is where... Um, it is so important to have a place where we stop and notice and marvel at just the improbable beauty of, of creation of life itself. Like mm-hmm. whether that's the stars or, you know, the cells, this idea that like it, it is, it's incomprehensible that this exists, which then is one of the places that I find my hope that in the resurrection, right. That, that, the resurrection is no more improbable than, than life itself to begin with. Um, and, and I think, you know, for those who are in the faith, we have trouble defending and explaining our, what is admittedly from in the context of the world, our irrational hope in eternal life. But for those who don't, they really have a hard time explaining the irrational existence of of anything, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I, I think, but it's helpful because, you know, 
in a, in a moment of death and in the process of grief, which I am in, you know, the reality of death is just unavoidable and so brutal and, and it can't be denied. And so, you know, we need these other places to, to look, to find um, our strength and our, our signs that, cause I mean, it's just, maybe at some points in life, in life, it's enough just to say, well, the Bible says it and I believe it. But I think that when, when our experience of death grows more um, personal, we, we need, we need additional things than the testimony of scripture or our community. So um, anyway, um, what are you thinking about friend? Well, I've been watching uh, the documentary series by um, Henry Gates called the yep. black church and so good. This man He's so brilliant. He's a great scholar, but instead of using um, the medium of books, he uses video and it makes his scholarship accessible to the masses. And mm -hmm. this series is really good along with other series that he's done. He's, um, I watched one last year on African civilizations. That was excellent. Uh, Black Church is really good, uh, but um, one of the things that struck me that I, I didn't quite know, uh, of course we know that slaves latched on to uh, the Exodus story as a metaphor for their own freedom struggle, and I knew that, um, you know, there were laws against um, uh, slave literacy, um, Slaves learned to read anyway, uh, but then there were um, white churches that would take parts of the Bible out. Get out. <laughs> yeah, and they said, "Okay, we got to take out this Exodus stuff and any any kind of liberating message, any kind of freedom text." We took it out, and they said, well, "Okay, we'll just preach the meek and mild Jesus." Right, that that will keep the slaves um, meek and mild. Right, but but <laughs> slaves saw in the suffering of Jesus, right, whips, um, mm -hmm. nails, uh, under the, uh, the oppression of the empire. Right, yep. they saw in Jesus their own struggle, and um, uh, at one point in the documentary. Uh, uh, Gates has uh, some church musician singing uh, up from the grave. He arose with a mighty triumph over his foes and, and that uh, slaves were inspired by the passion and the resurrection of Jesus as a, as a, as a um, um, inspiration for their own freedom struggle. That, that I didn't quite have that in my um my knowledge bank before. Um, and I, I found that fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. I, I have been really, really liking that as well. Um, I, well, I wasn't going to talk about this, but maybe I'll try something I've been thinking about and, and this is connected. Um, so there's a woman who I follow on social media. Her name is Allie Henney and she is, um, um, a black minister. She used to be in Charlotte. Now she's in Chicago and she, um, 
is really gaining more and more, um, her voice is being more and more amplified as we think more deeply about what does racial reconciliation look like? Um, and she speaks, um, I mean, she speaks to anybody, but she's often speaking to white people and, and just trying to help people, what white people understand what they don't understand with, and really trying not to let white fragility um, edit her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it's really interesting. Um, and, and I will say as a white woman, like I make it a point to follow her and to sit with her words. And they're, they're often, I mean, they do not make me feel good. Um, and I feel really strongly that, um, you know, this is this thing that we're trying to heal from this sin. I mean, it's, it's horrific and it's so deep. And if, if, if we feel good, we're probably not dealing with truth. Right. And so, and I think a lot of the ways that, um, American history and even sort of the racial justice work is packaged for mass consumption. People are always sort of thinking about like, well, well, what can we are forced to think about like, what can white people stand to hear? Because if, if not, you know, white people need to be on board, obviously, because we white people created the system. And so we have to be the ones that, um, you know, recognize it for what it is and work to dismantle it. Um, But also just this inherent tension of, you know, white people are really never going to be able to be the people who can lead and decide what does a just and healed society look like because, because I mean, white people thought that slavery was a just and healed society and white people thought that Jim Crow was a just and healed society. And I think anytime you're looking at an entrenched um, injustice issue, it, the person upon whom the injustice has, to, has been perpetrated has to have a main voice in being able to testify as to whether healing and reparations has happened or not, right? Because like, if you say to, you know, if you have a murderer and the victim of uh, um, the loved ones of the victims and you say to the murderer, like, okay, you get to decide what is fair to help these people move on. Like what seems fair to the murderer is, is presumably not going to be the same as what would feel fair to the people who have suffered the great harm. And so, I mean, that, I, that makes sense to me. And she's often pointing out that you know, white people, you know, because we live in a white supremacist society, like white people have been like everyone's perception of reality has been made so that white people are problem solvers, right? Like the people in charge should be white people. That is just one of the presuppositions of white supremacy. And so it's hard for white people to understand that we are not going to be able to be in charge of figuring out what what healing and dismantling the system is going to look like because a we're not the victims of it so so our opinions are i mean our just our perspective is naturally skewed and b for for white people to dismantle white supremacy is in a nefarious way another manifestation of white supremacy right so it's just 
it's just hard and it's complicated. And you add into it also just the tension of also it is the responsibility of white people and not the responsibility of black people. I mean, it's just, you know, as we talk about a lot, like lies are simple and truth is harder. Like mm -hmm. truth is just harder um, always because it's multifaceted and nuanced. And, you know, she had a post today where she was talking about how, you know, white people in these conversations need to um, basically like recognize that we aren't the leaders and we need to be listeners and we have lots to learn and not to dominate these conversations. I, and she might've even said it more strongly than that about just don't talk, like just listen and learn. And I was just thinking like, it's so interesting because I know that as I know white people, I am a white person and sort of your, your instinct and your bruised ego, you, you hear something like that. And, and what is so natural is just to be like, okay, but like, but like, not me, like, I'm not like that. I'm different. I, you know, that's just such a normal thing, especially if you're someone who, who really believes that the system is evil and really authentically wants to overturn it. Like, it's just hard to hear that. And, and the next move is like, well, if it's wrong for white people to make blanket assumptions about black people, then how come it's okay for Ali Henney as a black woman to make this blanket statement about white people? And I was thinking about that and just realizing that, um, that it really boils down to the difference between um, a prejudice stereotype versus experience. Like when Ali Henney talks about where, how she believes that white people should be involved in this process, she is speaking out of her experience in being in relationship with a lot of white people and being in work with a lot of white people. And so she's saying like, this is my lived experience of what happens when white people enter into these spaces without an awareness and without a posture of respect. Like this, this is how white supremacy actually ends up manifesting itself instead of being dismantled. But mm. But when white people make blanket statements about black people, because of the incredible ways that our society is still more, still so deeply segregated, right? Like most adults in this country do not have a single relationship, friendship with someone of another race. So if you're black and you need to get by in the world, you are going to have lots of experiences dealing with white people because whatever, like probably your boss is white, probably if you're trying to deal with the government, you're dealing with something I mean, like because all of these positions of power and authority and leadership go to white people in our society as it is now. So black people have lots of lived experience in dealing with lots of different white people, but white people in contrast, many of them can live their whole lives never having an authentic interaction with black people. And by authentic, I mean, like, do you see black people who like maybe check you out in the post office or maybe you want right. But like not a space where they would have the power to show up authentically and tell the truth and be their full self without editing themselves for your approval. And so I think, you know, the, the reason that I was just thinking about, like the reason that Ali Henney can I mean, not that she needs my permission, obviously, but the difference between her statement about white people and a white person's statement about black people is that most white people, you know, are going to make blanket statements about black people. If they do are going to be white people who have really almost zero lived experience 
with Black people. So it is a prejudice. It is an assumption. It is a story that they've been told that they're recycling. Are there exceptions? Probably. But I feel pretty strongly about this. Whereas most Black people, when they're making blanket statements about white people, what they're doing is saying, this is my lived experience when dealing with white people all the time. And that is the real, real difference. So that's what Well, and I would add that often when Black people, um, including myself, are making blanket statements about white people, uh, it's often not about um, internal nature. Mm -hmm. It's about a system and how a system has shaped you. Mm-hmm. And often when white people are making black blanket statements about black people, it's about nature. These people Correct. are this way. That's how they are. Yeah. They are born this way. Yeah. Uh, and, and where I think we're making uh, those statements out of, you know, this is how white supremacy has shaped you, which leaves room for change. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. I just, um, yeah, I just started thinking about it this morning because I was reading her statement and thinking like, this is hard to hear. And also I know it's true. And I know that if if what I care about is not looking like being about the work, but be, like actually being some, a place that the Holy Spirit can work through and not against, <laughs> then, mm-hmm. then truths that are hard to hear are truths that I that are gifts. Um, cause I certainly would never discern that for myself. Right. Um, and so, but I, I was also sort of reading it with that double consciousness of how would certain people in my life who are, mm. um, just triggered by discussions of racial justice in general, like, like what, what is the reason that they, what is the rationale? How, what's their response? And that is what I was, was thinking. So anyway, that's what I'm thinking about this morning. Um, yeah, I think uh, this is a really challenging time for, I will call them well-meaning white people, because I think they can be easily triggered um, when there is talk about white supremacy, because they want so much not to be identified with white supremacy that they end up reinforcing by trying to find a way out of the system, out of their being influenced by and benefiting from. Um, And I'm finding that in in our church community, right? People are just having a hard time. You know, can't we all just, can't we just be Christians? Can't we just be Americans? Can't we just why do we have to talk about this? Right. And so it's, it's in my estimation, it's a very dangerous time for um, the souls of many white people who have seen themselves in a light of openness, um, kind of non-prejudice, wanting to befriend and be connected to and with and be in community with. And this season that we're in is so challenging for some. I think they're in danger of sliding backwards. No, I agree. I I mean that 
I think the connection is, um, and what white people need to think about is, and, and like in the posture that I want to make when I'm listening to Ali Henney is just like, first of all, she's telling me the truth of her experience. So if, if I am a person who feels called by God to love my neighbor, <laughs> and then, then if her, if, if this is her experience, then my response to that can't be, it's not my fault because whether or not it's my fault is irrelevant. This is her experience. And so if I am saying like, I want to genuinely love and honor and respect her, then the fact that this is her experience has to matter to me, period. And I think, I mean, just recently I was having, I was trying to have a, a brave conversation with someone in my life about like just a really painful period and the way that I um, was really hurting and, and the way that this person who I love very much had caused some of that pain. And, and it was a hard conversation to have. And the only reason that I wanted to have it is because I, I really want healing in that relationship. And it was, and it was so painful and I couldn't figure out why, but like the whole conversation I was trying to, I was sharing this and, and the response was, well, this is what you did to me. And this isn't my fault. Like, and I, I was like, okay, I mean, okay, <laughs> like, fine. I, I, I hear that I also am an imperfect person and I can, I, whatever, that's not comfortable, but I can receive that. And, and I hear you saying like, these are all the reasons why this wasn't your intent and it wasn't your, okay. I hear that too, but I walk away from that conversation saying like, okay, well, once you've established that you've been hurt too, and it wasn't your fault, what's never been acknowledged is this huge pain that I was like, once you established that it wasn't your fault, then it was like, it didn't matter anymore. And I feel like that's what a lot of white people unintentionally are communicating to black people. Like when people are finally saying, this is the truth of our experience. And a lot of white people are saying, not my fault, not my fault, not my fault. Like, okay, A, we weren't talking about you. (laughs) We were talking about just the lived experience of your neighbors and your brothers and sisters who you say you care about. And even if it isn't your fault, does that make it okay? So like, as long as you've established that you're not culpable, then are you just willing to walk away and go on with your life? Because that, that is not love. (laughs) I mean, so if you're just so interested in, I mean, you, me, I, if all I want to do is prove that I'm innocent, that, and then that get makes me comfortable, but the actual, um, pain of my brothers and sisters only matters, doesn't matter to me anymore. Once it's not my fault, it doesn't matter to me anymore. And I think that is where we get stuck is that a lot of white people just need to be able to enter into these conversations and say like, look, do I care about the lived experience of my brothers and sisters? Do I care about the lived experience of my neighbors? And can I care more than whether or not it's my fault? Can I just say, if it isn't my fault, or if it is my fault, what matters is, can I be part of the healing and the restoration and the fixing it? Or do I just want to argue about my own culpability or morality? Like that's hugely problematic. Yeah. And that's what men do to women as well. Right. Um, If someone sees themselves as a nice guy, um, listen, would never um, punch, rape, abuse a woman, but would objectify, 
right? Mm-hmm. Has a hard time connecting that with sexism. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I'm not one of those guys. I'm, I'm one of the good ones. And so don't, don't lump me into that. And so we'll have a hard time um, in a conversation about sexism. Mm-hmm. The, the yeah, need, well- I mean, the apostle Paul was on point. <laughs> we talked about the desire to justify yourself. I mean, it's just in us and we have to fight that because if we're going to be free and whole and forgiven and um, our best human selves, we've got to resist justifying ourselves because when we do that, we resist truth. Mm -hmm. We resist the work of God in our lives. And I mean, for, I'm amazed that white evangelicals aren't first in line because part of the evangelical message is the world is fallen. Everyone is a sinner, right? God is not pleased. There is, there is no one good enough. Right. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've got to just start there. And if you can start there and then receive goodness and grace and forgiveness from God, then you will be saved. But you must acknowledge your sinfulness. You must acknowledge your separation from God. I mean, that is just foundational to the message. And yet when it comes to racism or sexism, it's like, nope. (laughs) we're not starting there. And one of the things that was disturbing to me during the impeachment trial is to hear, was to hear um, the the lawyers for uh, the former president um, say something like, you know, there are voices that want you to believe that America was founded on racism and is racist. I'm like, if if you can't acknowledge that truth, then, oh boy. Yeah, I mean, and that I mean that is a remarkable thing. Like, if if you if you refuse to acknowledge that America, as it was founded, with some people owning other people, was not a white supremacist race. Like, if you can't acknowledge that truth, then really what you're saying is, that's that was my ideal of justice. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, which, you know, I think people are mad because they think, well, if I acknowledge that truth, that the founders of this country, most of them were white supremacists, that means I have to say that they're all garbage and everything they ever thought or did is worthless. And yes. again, like that is just the yes. problem that it, it doesn't- And we say that about ourselves clear. as well. And, right. and that's the problem with people acknowledging racism today because they- think if I say I have benefited from this, that means my whole life is trash. My whole life is garbage. And therefore I am irredeemable. Which is, I think why evangelical Christians are, instead of being the best are the worst, because they take that like gospel reduced to a theological formula and that they walk away with it is I was a sinner and now I'm righteous. Like now I'm justified. So now that I'm justified, everything I do and think and believe is acceptable in the sight of the Lord. And if I acknowledge, if I allow any truth to penetrate that actually 
sin still has power of my life, then my salvation comes into question, right? Because, because it's this idea of like a before and after. And so if you, if, if you acknowledge any nuance in your life with Christ and in your righteousness in your life with Christ, you, you then question your whole, you know, eternity. And that's why they can't do it, which is, I, again, I would argue is just a fundamental misreading, ironically, not even just of the gospel, but of, of Paul. Like if you're in love with Paul, which is worth doing, like I'm, I'm a big fan of Paul. I mean, you have, I mean, he's all there all the time talking about, like, I do the things I don't want to do. And I don't do the things I do want to do. And I, I mean, like, he's very much wrestling with, you know, what, who, who he is the already and the not yet, like how he's well, already. And Paul in Romans says that by faith, we are counted as righteous. We are accredited righteousness as if righteousness were an account and um, the, the account of Jesus that's full of righteousness is credited to us. Mm-hmm. Not that we ever <laughs> become, become in this life totally righteous, but right. it's credited to us by faith. Right. And that's, that's a That's a very different thing. That's a very different thing. And like, that's why he can talk about, you know, like being clothed. It's not real Paul. I don't know if it's due to a Paul or Paul, but being clothed with right, being clothed with Christ, being clothed Mm -hmm. with Christ and putting on Christ. And that this idea that, you know, there's, there is a, a, there is another to whom we are being yoked and to through whom we are being transformed. It is Mm -hmm. not our authentic self, which that's why he can have all this conversation about like, I'm so sorry. Um, that's why he can have all these conversations. Oh my gosh, I keep trying. It's the only thing I can do. My is- friends are important people. And look. This is the problem. It's not even, it's my, not my cell phone. I can turn that off. It's our home phone, which I know is ridiculous. Everyone, haha, who has a home phone? But I have children who do not have cell phones. And so we have to have a home phone in the house so that they can call us. Remember back in pre-pandemic days when our kids would sometimes be home and we were not home? No, my child is seven. Your kid's too young. <laughs> anyway, whatever. All right. Well, we've 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 nailed that. Uh, we we have covered that. So, what are you preaching about this week? Well, I'm struggling. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to do it. It is Monday. It's just Monday. I'm not sure if I'm going to do another Sunday um, of uh, our series, Pandemic Emotions. I did depression uh, this past Sunday, and. Um, thought it went well. I'm not sure if I'm going to do one more. I'm feeling a tug toward some traditional Lenten themes. I'm ready to journey to the cross with Jesus. Um, I'm ready to look at those, those texts. And so um, hopefully I'll discern uh, sometime today uh, what direction God wants me to go in. You've done grief and you've done depression. And what's the other one you've done? Oh gosh, you had to ask. I can't remember the other one. I know, I can't remember the other one either. Grief and depression. And it was, because I don't think it was anger. I think anger needs to be one of them. Well, um, that is on my, that was on my list. Um, and so that is easily done. Despair. Didn't you do like grief and despair and depression? agony, gloom, despair, and agony. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I did fatigue. Fatigue, that's right. Fatigue, yes, yes, yes. So maybe anger, I'm thinking about uh, guilt 
but that may be just what I'm wrestling with. I, I don't know if that's no, 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 widespread. No, I think that's very universal. I think that's very universal. Yeah. I mean, I think there's just so much guilt around right now. I mean, guilt that we're not doing this better, that we're mm-hmm. not like rising above better and guilt that, you know, we, we are still here and so many are not. I mean, mm. yeah, I think guilt is real. I think guilt, anger, and also just like lethargy is um, something that people are really struggling with. So I think you should do all of those. All of those. Okay. All right. <laughs> what about you? What are you preaching? My cheap opinion. Well, so <laughs> you're, you're still talking about evangelism. Yeah. This is the last week of our evangelism series. And um, you're going to clarify the gospel. Correct. <laughs> so it's ironic because I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about you a lot. Um, and I probably will start the sermon by just sharing your practice um, that Yolando has this practice when meeting with leaders in his church or really any small group, any group, and not mm-hmm. just this church, but all his churches, he'll just go around the circle and ask people, like, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And have we talked about this on the podcast before or just in our I'm life? Not sure. I think, I think just the two of us. I mean, I think that it's really, it's really, (laughs) it's really hard. um, One, because there is a very common and popular, easy, simple articulation of the gospel, which is false, right? So, you know, people have seen, um, you know, somebody, I'm sure someone has had a nap, somebody take a napkin and draw the two hills, (laughs) you know, God's on that hill and you're on this hill and there's a uncrossable gulf in between you. And then you draw the cross lying down and you can cross over on the cross to God and Jesus has paved the way. And something about like, I mean, just what you're saying, like you are um, a hopeless sinner and God um, needed uh, blood to atone for your guilt. And Jesus um, took, took your punishment instead of yours. And now you can be righteous. And, and like the problem with that is, I mean, a, it is not, the gospel. <laughs> well, I think N.T. Wright would say it's too, you, you've shaved off so many other parts of the gospel and you've written well, And the whole that. Is scripture. I mean, like, yes. you, it's not that you can't pick three verses yes. from the New Testament and proof text that ideology of God, but it does not fit the witness of scripture as to who God is like God's character of just, you know, if you, if that's all, you know, of the gospel, then the image of God that you're going to walk away with is God um, is um, distant and far away and angry and demands the blood of the innocent in order to forgive the guilty. Mm -hmm. And that is, blasphemy. I mean, that is not who scripture reveals God to be. And if you, if that's your understanding of the gospel, you won't understand anything of the beauty of God. You won't understand anything of the goodness of God. You won't understand anything of the intimacy and friendship of God. And I did start listening to that um, lecture, N.T. Wright lecture that you recommended to me about how Jesus became King. And one thing that's helpful about that, that I'll definitely say in the sermon is if that's your understanding of the gospel, one of the fundamental problems of that is then why is there all that other stuff in the gospel? Like, like what? I mean, if what you need to understand the gospel is this idea that Jesus was born and Jesus died on a cross, then like, why do we have all these stories about Jesus living? And and why does that matter? I mean, basically that all becomes like extra 
like B-roll footage Mm -hmm. that's kind of nice to know, but is not important or essential in any way. And so the problem with understanding the gospels in that way is that then it makes the gospels irrelevant to the gospel. And that you just go to proof texting Paul. Correct. And, and so, and again, like I like Paul, but anyway, I, I, the, the ironic thing is a, you were helping me see that in this last week of this sermon series, um, that I, we, I really need to talk to people about the idea that there is a moment in the life of disciples where we make a commitment Um, And so we need to talk about that moment of commitment and what it is. And, you know, there's the question for us is, is I do not think that's a one and done moment. I do think that we continually come back to that moment. I mean, almost daily of saying like, this is, this is the kingdom of God. And this is the culture of the kingdom of God. And I'm recommitting myself to live by these values, even when they're hard. And even when, in the short term, they seem painful. And even when they are just in direct defiance of the values of the world. Um, and so, you know, we, we need that for ourselves, but also if we're serious about being a community that welcomes others in and a community with a culture wherein the Holy Spirit can bring us and the people around us alive in Christ, then we have to know how to be able to say like, what we're committed to. So if we say, you know, I believe in the good news of the gospel, we need to be able to tell someone what that is. And I think it's a lot easier to sort of say, I don't believe in this angry father, God, who demands the blood of his innocent child to forget, you know, I I don't believe that. So then what do I believe, which is back to the brilliance of your question of going around the circle with your leaders and people studying the Bible to say like, what is the gospel? And I think the hard thing is, Again, lies are simple and truth is not. So it is the one of the reasons that sort of um, very useful watered down version of the gospel, which leaves justice completely off the table. <laughs> one of the reasons it was so handy is, you know, it's just easy and portable um, and, and a great prop for the empire. Um, but, but it's not enough to say God is not that. We also want to be able to say to ourselves and other people, this is who I believe God is. And this is what I think, um, this is what I think the good news of the gospel is that I believe in and I'm dedicating my life to. So how do you answer that question? A, it's hard because it's more complicated than the six word version of false version. And B, I think it's hard because we all who, who are in the community, it's like we're caught without our pants on because we're like, oh gosh, I don't have like a simple answer to this question. And so what does that mean? And I think that's where a lot of us would even use that watered down version as the answer of what is the gospel, even though it's not what we actually believe about God or what we find our hope or truth or beauty in it. But like, we feel like, well, we have to say something and this is what everybody says. So let's just say that. And so um, anyway, this week I have to say, what is the gospel? (laughs) One of the things that's been just helpful to me, I mean, just deep in my soul, not just as a preacher, but as a disciple, is to go back to the grand narrative of scripture. I I believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus 
is the high point. It's the zenith of God's work of salvation. Yes to Jesus. Yes to the cross. Yes to the resurrection all day, every day. But what happens is that in talking about the gospel, we immediately go there and we don't go anywhere else. So if you, we would never do that with a movie. We would never just go to, oh, and watch this final scene. (laughs) Yeah. Luke Skywalker, Luke Skywalker fought Darth Vader and right. And it's like, wait, there's no, there's a whole narrative that, that that lead up to that. That makes that meaningful. That makes it meaningful. And so if you just begin with just the first three chapters of Genesis, this good God creates a good planet with these two people made in God's image and it goes wrong. And this is how it goes wrong. But in the third chapter, God makes a promise to fix it. And scholars call, I think it's the third chapter of Genesis, the proto euangelion the you know the first gospel the the beginning of the gospel and so this stretches back to genesis and the whole biblical narrative is about how god is going to redeem this creation that's gone wrong because of the sin of human beings and if you put it in that context then okay um you and i do think it's just hard because even you just, that's not a simple, that's not as simple as just shouting John 316 at people. Right. And so this is the problem. And I think in general, it's, it's part of the particular problem of Western civilization in quotes is that we just, something doesn't have to be true as long as it's useful. And I think that is the problem that, you know, and useful, obviously for what, but I'm, you know, this is not, it is, it requires more than three seconds. Oh, there's a, sorry, there's a kid behind me. She just. <laughs> I'm glad it was your child and not. I know. I was like, there's someone, there's someone in the house. It's coming from inside the house. Well, anyway. to your point, it seems to me that in our day, people are asking a different question than the question the reformers were seeking to answer in the 16th century. I mean, it's very clear from the work of Martin Luther that Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, was asking the question, this Augustinian monk who was doing all of this um, fasting and um, uh, hardship to his own body to try to be right with God, he was asking, how can a sinner like me be right with God? Right. Right. And so... Okay, go to John 3.16, go to Romans 8.1. I mean, okay, there are texts for that. But that's not the first question that people today are asking. I think the question people are asking is not how can I be right with God? How can a sinner be right with God? They're asking, why is the world so messed up? (laughs) Why is the, and how, how is this going to be fixed? Is it, do I just need to elect the right political leaders? Do I just need to join the right political party? Uh, Do we need to build up the army, army, a better economy? No. Why is the world the way it is? Well, let's go back to Genesis and tell this story. Well, and I think the other problem is, you know, when, when the question is, how can a sinner like me be right with God? And the answer is John 3, 16, then you know, people walk away with a functional theology of like, 
no matter what I do, I'm right with God and God doesn't care about the suffering of anybody but me and people just like me. And so then I think other people who, who believe because we've taught them that that is the gospel, then say like, well, is that salvation? And is that good? And is your God good if people can, you know, go on crusades and murder people? And as long as they throw water on them first, they're saving them instead of killing them. Like that is the problem. I see. And, and it's John 316 as a proof text is not the problem. It's Mm -hmm. how we hear it because that text actually begins. God so loved the world. Right. And if we just paused right there, that highlights so much that we leave out of the gospel. If, if the gospel, if, if, if the coming of the kingdom of God is part of the gospel, if the, if heaven's invasion of earth is part of the gospel, Mm -hmm. then it, it fits right there in the, so loved the world, because I think what people hear is, oh, God so loved me. (laughs) I don't know about the rest of you. It's, it's a very individualized and Are you a part yeah. of the world? Yes. But we can walk away from that quote unquote gospel with, well, I'm right. What's what's wrong with the rest of you? Yeah, and you could be right too. And yeah. if you're not right, that's on you. And it leaves out God's agenda for the entire planet. Like God has an agenda and God is working out God's agenda. And Part of what John the Baptist was doing was saying, okay, this, this kingdom thing is happening. Right. And if you're not on board, come on, it, it's happening. And it's not just happening to individuals and groups. This is a worldwide takeover right. of heaven. Right. And, and I think the reality is, you know, if we look at the whole witness of scripture, then we start looking at, so, you know, what was the covenant that God made in Deuteronomy and how were the chosen people created to live as the light to the nations? And this idea that like, there were limits to how much people could acquire and there were limits to, you know, the laws were not just the laws in the eyes of the people who were most powerful, but what was righteous in the sight of God, which is why the needs of the widow and the orphan and the stranger were centered and were counterbalanced to the, um, to the, desires of the of of the powerful ruler and that is something that we you just dismiss all of that i mean like the story of you know collecting the manna this idea that if you collected a little or you collected a lot everybody got the same amount i mean that is a fundamental um expression of the culture of righteousness in the kingdom of god which is I mean, like it's socialism. (laughs) So I think that's the idea is that, you know, we want to say that the kingdom of God is just maybe an amplified and slightly tidied up version of the values of the culture we're living in right now. And that is just not the witness of scripture, which is then why it's great to have just pick out John 316 and just pick out like, Luke 9, 11, and, and then everything else goes away because other parts of scripture call out us. Yes. All the powerful. And again, to come full circle in this conversation, when you go to a funeral and you listen to a funeral sermon or a funeral homily, often, and when you listen to people talk to one another, after the funeral, 
the language is usually the person who has died is in a, in a better place. Mm-hmm. They're in heaven with the Lord and kind of period there. Now, is that true? Absolutely. The Bible says when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. But the Bible, the biblical narrative doesn't stop with that. It doesn't stop there, right? So there's this, at least my understanding of the teaching of scripture is that when a person dies, the body's in the ground, your soul, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. But that's 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 a temporary holding place. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Where I am, you may be also. But Jesus isn't staying there. At some right. point, Jesus brings the fullness of the kingdom. Those who are there with him come down. That's what First Thessalonians is about. Yeah. The trumpet will sound. And as Jesus comes, the dead in Christ will rise. And the image there is from the ancient world when a king was riding their chariot or whatever they were riding into a town, the people who loved the king in that town would go out and meet the king and escort the king into the city. I mean, that's that's Palm Sunday, that's Zechariah, that's, yeah. But we've turned that into a rapture theology so that Jesus comes again, everybody goes up, and then they just go back up to heaven. And the biblical narrative is that, no, they meet the king who comes down to the planet, fully establishes a kingdom of peace, of justice, of righteousness, that of shalom, that not only renews people, but renews the creation itself. That is the gospel. And we leave that part of the gospel out. It's not just my soul getting saved and I go to heaven for eternity. It's no, God is redeeming creation. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I think that, and the nice thing about that is it helps people understand that the, um, the work for justice, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. That's not a nice to do in the meantime. This is the culture of the kingdom. And so our freedom is we get to live in that kingdom here and now um, in anticipation of the fullness of it outside the realm of time. But, but that's what Jesus means when he says like the kingdom of heaven is, is here it is among you, you who see the Messiah and worship the Messiah, then you get to live in the values of the kingdom with the freedom of um, knowing that you are forgiven and um, eternally alive in Christ. That makes you, that removes all boundaries from you, all, all, all things that are stopping you from living this way right now, because you have both the permission to do it badly, right? Like I'm going to screw up and I'm going to still have access to forgiveness. I, and I have the um, presence of God and the Holy spirit. And I have the grace of Jesus, which is not just that inclination of God to forgive me, but is also that presence of God, which makes my feebleness the strength of God made perfect in my weakness, right? This idea that the grace of God makes this, the five loaves and two fishes into this feast that feeds the thousands. I mean, this idea that we have a little, but we are living in the kingdom um, right now, which means we're not just martyrs. We're also um, living wells of this kind of water. Anyway, but this is a long podcast. <laughs> 
You say that every time. I do say it every time. Every time. Every time for a year we've been saying, we're two pastors, take a walk, which we don't do. <laughs> we get to the end and I I'm know. like, I know everyone's sick of listening to us, so we need to stop talking now. It's part of my charm. So <laughs> thanks for listening. Um, we did not even talk about next week. I would like to talk about how we make sense of the death of um Rush Limbaugh. Like I've been listening to a lot of, so we need to have a conversation about that next week. Think about it. Okay, Think very about good. Yes. Okay. Um, but thanks for listening to us and you should go and check out Yolando's um, sermon series on pandemic emotions. You can look at Derita, D-E-R-I-T-A, prez.org. Is that right? DeritaPres.org mm-hmm. is your website. You should search their YouTube channel and you can find all of his messages and his very well-produced worship videos on their YouTube channel. And you can find um, a plethora of bingeable content on the Podbean website. Just look for the Dry to Church podcast. And if you want to find out more about um, what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org. And you can join us for worship live on Facebook at 10 a.m. on Sundays. It is a lot of fun to be on the live stream chat. And I don't know how I'm ever going to get people to stop texting in church now after this mm, is over. <laughs> There's going to be like, what's happening on so the platform? You, and then... You've got to have your iPad on the pulpit. No, so that people... No, no, <laughs> no, no. I will say it, the chat grows like, ominously eerily quiet during the sermon. (laughs) Listen, I, (laughs) I volunteered to help. This is years ago. It's almost 10 years ago. I volunteered. No, it's more 15 years ago. I volunteered to help uh, a church plant uh, here in Charlotte. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll pass out bulletins. I'll be one of your greeters. And one of the things they did, um, uh, this church, it met in a restaurant. They had a big screen up front and, um, you could text um, during the sermon and it would come up on the screen. And it was very interesting. Yeah, no, (laughs) I am. I I will never. Yeah, no. Hashtag. No, thanks. No, thanks. I don't need anyone else pointing out the flaws like in real time, like the whole sermon last week. Oh, and sometimes and people were encouraged to text questions. And so sometimes the preacher would respond, oh, I see a question from, okay. I'm like, wow, that's that's a lot to do. That is bold <laughs> and beautiful and faithful. And I do not perceive that the Lord has called me to do that yet. And if he does, I trust that Jesus will give me the ability to be faithful to that call. Anyway, whatever, check out our podcast if you like. Okay. <laughs> iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, The Grove podcast, the Grove Church podcast. I should really know the exact name of that. Anyway, look for the tree. Thanks for listening. We really like talking to each other, thinking about y'all listening along, and I hope that you have a great week. Bye.